Well, it is great to be with you here this morning. Good morning. Oh, it's good. And so many of you are refreshed again after this week of VBS. Yeah, some of you. Okay, I saw a few eye rolls. but uh, So it was just a jammed pack, awesome week, some great worship, exciting times. You got a little glimpse of that. And, and one of the things that I thought was so cool this year, and we kind of, as I started the week, uh, one of the things in the training times, they had a show of hands of all those that were serving uh, to, and helping out with VBS that had never served before, never been to one of the VBSs here uh, at Harvest. And it was like almost half of the people there. And so it was just neat to see as the week went on and the eyes were open as to all that goes on and, and just to see and experience that for the first time. You know, we, we promote things like that. And sometimes we're trying to just give you a little taste of what it's like. Videos and things like that help a lot. But I was thinking about that this week. And, and so I got a question for you. The question is this. Are you more inclined to buy something if there is a celebrity endorsement? If, if there's someone that's familiar, maybe someone that you like, a celebrity, and they're up and they're endorsing a product, are you more inclined to buy something because of that? Or not? That's really the question. I was reading an article this week, and uh, they spend, I mean, the, there is millions and millions of dollars spent on celebrity endorsements. It's just uh, unbelievable the amount of money. And, and as I was reading that, because I was kind of a little skeptic, and, and so I was reading through this article from the Strategic Content Marketing, and it was five reasons celebrity endorsements work. And here are the five reasons. Number one, people like to see a familiar face. People like to see a familiar face with a product. And there's some, uh, just uh, the recognition there. Number two, people want to be like the celebrity. And so you want to be like them. And so if they've got this kind of watch, well, then you want that kind of watch and so on and so forth. Also, celebrities open up new demographics. Maybe this is something you would have never thought about getting before, but because someone you like or a celebrity that you relate to had that, then now you're willing to, to purchase that product. Number four, the belief of getting a high-quality product, that, that you believe that this celebrity is honest, and so you're more inclined to that. And then lastly, people remember the ad after they see it when the celebrity is involved. You'd be surprised, as skeptic as, as skeptic as I was, and yet a commercial came on, and Jennifer Garner was there, and she said, what's in your wallet? And you think of Capital One credit cards, right? I mean, it, there's something about that. Why do I say all this? Well, I say this because, believe it or not, what they're looking for is credibility and authenticity. That's really what they're going after, and the Apostle Paul actually talks about that very same thing here as we jump back into our series here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I've been working through the series through the ages, and I invite you, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's going to start off really addressing this subject of credibility, of authenticity. And so you see, if you're taking notes, point number one. 
seek for your true commitment to Christ in part to be reflected in the lives you impact for his glory. Again, seek for your true commitment in Christ in part to be reflected in the lives you impact for his glory. Paul starts off here, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are the letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul starts off and he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves? Literally saying, look, are we just standing up here? Are we just bragging about ourselves in this letter? Are we just trying to come alongside and just pat ourselves on the back? Or do we need some type of resume? Paul's really saying, should I get out my resume for you and and tell you? Or maybe even this this letter of recommendation. Maybe you should write this letter of recommendation for me. And, And what you need to know and understand is in that day and age, in that time, as someone would come in, especially delivering a message and something of some importance, and these letters that would be read to the church, many times they would be accompanied with a letter of recommendation. They would come and, and whoever was sending the, the letter, whatever that authority was, whatever credibility they came, they would then write up this letter and say, hey, look, this individual here presenting this letter is someone that should be listened to, that, that they are speaking for me or for this whatever organization, and so take them seriously. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, do I need to come with some type of a resume for you? Some type of letter of validation for that And then verse 3, he says, and to show you that you are that letter. That you are the letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on your very lives, on human hearts. And so Paul's saying, look, I don't need this. You are that resume. How you live your life. We came and we delivered this message to you. And we know that Paul on on several of his missionary journeys stopped in at Corinth. He established this church. He had written the previous letter, 1 Corinthians. We actually know there was probably a letter even in between these two as well. And so he had much correspondence. He had poured his life, invested his life in ministry into these people. They saw his commitment for Christ. And it affected them. And the Holy Spirit used that in their lives. And they were his letter of recommendation. Not written on stone. What's Paul talking about here? Well, I I think he's referring back here to Exodus and the Ten Commandments. When Moses, and I know we'll talk about this in just a minute because he mentions it again. Where Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets and the Ten Commandments. The law for, that was given to the, to the people of Israel at that time. And he says, it's not something that was written down on paper or on letters of stone. But it was written on your hearts. It's what God had done as God 
took that message that they had heard and started to work and transform and change their hearts. Paul's ministry had had that kind of effect as they saw his commitment to Christ and saw how he lived it out. And then they started to emulate that and allow God to change their hearts through the, through the Holy Spirit the way God had changed Paul's heart. Paul also here was, was combating um, a little bit of the teaching of the Judaizers. And, and it was prevalent in that day. The Judaizers, Judaizers were ones that, that they believed in being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just faith in Jesus Christ. It was faith in Christ plus keeping the law. And so there was the gospel here of faith, but there was also then the, the legalism of, but you've got to keep the rules. You've got to keep the, reg, the regulations. And so it was faith plus keeping the law. And so Paul's going to be referring back to this as he starts to draw this comparison about what was and now what is with the new covenant and then keeping the law. And, and it's, it's important to say that, that God's moral law doesn't change. What we see in the Old Testament and, and the, stand, the standard that God had set, it, it was a reflection. It was of the person and character of God. We, we, we believe in a holy, sinless God. And the moral standards don't change. But what changes is the fact that we need to achieve those standards in order to have salvation. The moral standard was just showing us how greatly we fail. Because we can't measure up to that. How short we fall in comparison to a holy God. And that was the purpose of the law. Paul had that transforming work in his life. And as he shared it out and as he lived and did life with, with people, it affected them. And changed them. And Paul said that, you are my resume. You are the letter of recommendation there. You know, it's, um, it's been brought to my attention that, um, that us McGinnis men have a certain stance that we like to, a way in which we like to stand. A number of years ago, uh, we were uh, um, together here, and some of you guys know uh, my father. My mom and dad used to come here to Harvest, and they've since moved down to Virginia, but uh, we're here for... Uh, about four or five years, and if you've met him, maybe sometimes you even saw the two of us standing together, but uh, one time we were at an event, my father was standing there in the McGinnis stance, and I was standing beside him in the same exact stance, and on this occasion, both of my brothers, I've got twin brothers that are seven years younger than myself, and they were both kind of standing on either side, and we're standing there talking, and all four of us we're standing with our arms crossed in the stance. I know this because we had an individual that came up, looked at us, started laughing and said, oh my goodness, you guys all stand the same way. And we went, oh, yeah, I guess we do. 
And the really funny thing was not sooner than that than they left and stuff, and up walks my son, and all of us stopped and waited, and he went, <laughs> just like the rest of us. Now, I, I think his stance is changing. He graduates from boot camp here next week, so uh, I think maybe they've influenced him a little differently in how he stands, but, uh, but it's an incredible thing. The thing about it is this. I don't ever recall my dad sitting down and saying, son, this is how you stand. I, I don't, and I know for sure that my dad never said, no, 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 you have to stand this way. Somewhere along the line, my dad would stand a certain way, and I saw my dad, and I thought my dad was, I guess, kind of a cool guy, or maybe just from being around him, and so I started standing that way, and my brothers came along behind us, and they would see dad, and they would see us, and, and they just sort of started picking up that this is how we stand. We rub off on each other. We influence each other. That's just a little thing, little mannerisms and things like that. How much more when we understand who Jesus Christ is, when we've come to saving faith, when we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we've got the Holy Spirit indwelled in our life and he starts to do a work, he starts to do a miracle in our hearts and we change and we start to change little by little and growing and we see the glory of God and it affects us and it changes us that we just can't help but share it out and affect the people that are around us. That was the ministry that Paul was talking about. That was how he could say, you are my letter of recommendation. And so my question to you is this, is God transforming you? Is God transforming you? Or where do you see the change and growth and the transformation taking place in your life? Where are you changing and growing? And if so, who are you influencing? Who is around you that they see your commitment for Christ, that they see your excitement for Jesus Christ and what he's doing in your life, and that it is now affecting them and pointing them to Christ by how you're living it out and what? He's doing in your life. So how does this take place? Well, he continues on here in this next section here. Point number two, experience and share the power of the life-giving, spirit-directed new covenant. Experience and share the power of the life-giving, spirit-directed new covenant. Verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not by the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So such is the confidence that we have through Christ from or toward God. Such is the confidence. This is the certainty that we have from Christ, is what Paul's talking about. This is the guarantee, the certainty. You can count on this. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. Not that there's anything that we can do in and of ourselves to merit any of this. Not that we can muscle it and work so hard and try to do it on our own. That our sufficiency is, is, we are incapable of that. We are incapable of claiming anything, any goodness at all within us is something that we cannot claim for ourselves. It didn't come from us, is what Paul's talking about. Not that we can claim anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency. He has made us complete to be workers or ministers of the new covenant. It's not by the law, not by the letter, not by the letter of the law and the the law that was given there. He says it's not by the list of regulations and the rules and that that you just can't muster enough energy to keep that in and of your own. It's not about the letter of the law, but it's about the Spirit of God. It's about the transforming work of God in your life. He's made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. The new covenant. We're seeing a a, a contrast that Paul's drawing between the old covenant, the law, and what was, and the new covenant. I think it's important here. So what is the new covenant? He says, I've given you a new covenant. The new covenant is this. It's the promise that God makes to humanity that he will forgive sins and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned towards him. Those who place their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The new covenant, it's the forgiveness and the restored fellowship that comes when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the saving work of dying on the cross for our sins, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he's alive, that he conquered death. It's that promise of forgiveness, that promise that the payment of sins, the Old Testament listed out the laws and all the ways and things that we were supposed to do, and as we look at our lives and we look at our sin, and we, and we just cannot measure up to that law, But he gave a new covenant. He said, you know what? You can't do it yourself, and that's okay, because I took care of your sin problem with my son, Jesus Christ. He'll pay for your sins, and then you can know the forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ, from the gospel. That's the good news message. It's important to to note, even in the Old Testament, everyone who has been and will be saved from Adam all the way to now and even in the future. Everyone has been saved on the new covenant terms. Though it wasn't officially finalized and completed until Christ's death. But yet even in the Old Testament, they were saved not because they were keeping the law and even the sacrifices which were failing and incomplete and they had to keep doing it over and over and over and over and all of that was just to point to the ultimate sacrifice, the one that would take care of sin, Jesus Christ. It was the coming Messiah. That was the promise that they were counting on and for those of us now, we look back in time and we know who that Messiah is, Jesus. Jesus was and is the payment for our sin. And that's what Paul here is talking about. And 
he continues on here with this new covenant. In verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, everybody say, that's the law. Okay. Carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which has been brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. So Paul says, now the ministry of death, is he talking about the ministry of death? The ministry of death is, is really, it's, it's the law. The ministry of, of death is, is the law that, that, that was carved in stone. And we see this reference again here to the Ten Commandments that was written out in stone. And the problem was, as they saw the law, as they saw the rules and regulations, and the standard was set so high, it only brought condemnation, death. We, we failed to meet that. And so it ultimately led to our death, our spiritual death. We deserve to spend eternity in hell because of our sin and how we didn't measure. And so now the ministry of death carved in stone, the law, came with such glory that the Israelites could not look on the face of Moses because of his glory. So what's he talking about? Well, there's a reference that he's making. He's looking back to Exodus chapter 34. He's looking back to when Moses was was with the children of Israel. They'd already left uh, Egypt, and they had not yet gone into the promised land. And God takes them and goes up to Mount Sinai, and and he spends 40 days in the presence of God. And in that time also gives this law, gives the the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And I want to just read a passage from there. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read from, from Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai... With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So Moses called to them, and Aaron, to all the leaders of the congregation, returned to him, and Moses talked to them, and afterward... All the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, and the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And so we see here in this that that it had so affected Moses being in the presence of God. And I hate to even use the term that he got a sunburn you couldn't even imagine. It wasn't even that though. It wasn't, it's interesting because it wasn't that he was even in pain at all because he didn't even realize how the glory of God was being so reflected it changed his skin. It lit him up. And so when, when they came down, the people were like, they could see, oh my goodness, he, he's just shining as he's come down from God and he's carrying these two tablets of the law, of the, the Ten Commandments. And it's an interesting because as they saw that, they, they were afraid of it. And, and I, you got to say, when, when, in the, when sinful man in the presence of holiness, it, it, it just, 
It, it drives us to our knees. It drives fear. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. The law was necessary to show us our sin and to show us how helpless we are in our sinfulness. The pursuit of, of following the law, we sometimes use the term legalism. It's kind of what the Judaizers are saying. We're saved by faith, but also try to keep these laws. And i got to muscle it. And the way that I can be righteous is by doing these things. But it doesn't work. We can't muscle it that much. And that legalism saying, i got to do, i got to do, i got to do. It, it, it brings the blanket of guilt and shame because we can't measure up. And so it's not that. But it is that when we come to saving faith, he says, you don't have to because I took care of your sin, is what Jesus said. And so it's not the law, but it's grace. It's God giving us what we didn't deserve, what we couldn't measure up to. And he said, you're forgiven. Your sins are paid for. I took that punishment. There had to be punishment. You deserve punishment, but I took it. And then he rose again and he conquered death. Folks, we are free. We are not under that blanket of guilt anymore. If, we, if you've come to saving faith, you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ made him Lord of your life, then you're free. One of my favorite couple of verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, Now therefore you are under no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. We are free. It's an amazing thing. We're free. And so if there was glory in Moses and in the law, if we saw the glory of God, the radiance and the magnitude of the person and character of God, the glory of God, if there was glory in the law, how much more is there in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul says? How much more as we see the transforming work of the Spirit of God in your life that the glory from the law just pales in comparison. For if the glory of the ministry of condemnation, the law, the ministry of righteousness, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. What once was a bright light now pales in comparison. What's he talking about here? Well, let's just in a very small way, let's just for a moment pretend. Let's just pretend that the lights were dimmed down and it was nice and dark, maybe some night. I've got in my hand here, I've got a little flashlight here, and this is actually a, a powerful little flashlight. This is a 350 lumen light. I don't know if you know anything about lights and tactical flashlights and stuff. And if I walked up to you and it's dark and it's dim and I popped you with this right here, put that sucker right in your eyes. 
all of a sudden it would be blinding in that moment. You'd probably say a couple of things. One, you'd say, could you get that light out of my eyes? And two, you'd go away saying, man, that is a bright light. Now let's keep with that thought and the lights are dim and everything's down here and let's just say I turn that flashlight off and then I go over and I get one of those spotlights right over there. And I bring that sucker in and I light you up with that spotlight or maybe I bring in and we got the car headlights on bright and we shoot right in your face that light or maybe even you go and you look up and you see the sun. You got this really bright light that's now shining in your face, blinding you, and then I stand beside it with this light right here. All of a sudden, this light isn't that bright anymore, is it? Well, why? Well, in comparison, it pales. It doesn't measure up. It seemed bright at the time, but there was something so much brighter that now it's like it's not even on at all. That's what Paul's talking about here in this passage. He's saying, look, the glory that came from the law and, and everything that, that they did as we saw the rules and regulations that God had said, as we saw really the character of God that was written out there, this is who God is and the standards that are, are to be with God and to be kept, and God knew all along that this was not something he was giving us so we could do it and measure up. It was so that we would see how we didn't measure up because of our sin. But don't worry about it, because something even brighter, something with so much more glory was coming. Jesus Christ, and the work of Christ on the cross, and then as you come to Christ, and you see the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It says, indeed in this case, what once had glory, verse 10, has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more what is permanent to have glory. So what was brought to an end here, and we see the law and the keeping of the law, and then when Christ came on the scene and we had victory over death, Victory over sin and forgiveness now. And that that continues on and on for eternity now. What was ending has ceased and had glory, but even more what is permanent and eternal now has glory. The glory that we see here, it's, it's the freedom that we have in Christ. It's an amazing thing. It's something that, that should just fire you up. This past week has just been, as I've just been mulling over this over and over. And on one hand, I see my sinfulness. And on the other hand, yet I see what Christ did. And it's okay because I can't measure up. I don't have to. I'm going to worship the one who does. He's taking care of it. And the freedom that comes in that. And so that drives us to now, here's four responses to the new covenant. Four responses to the new covenant. Number one, gratitude. Gratitude. You are free out from the bondage of sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. It should lead us to gratitude. Number two, it should lead us to worship and praise. 
Lifting high the name of Jesus Christ, it's easy now to exalt the one who's actually worthy of our praise. And when it's not about my glory, it's about giving him glory and worship and praise. And number three, then to worship through obedience. So now, what do I do with all of these standards that were set? And so it's not that I have to to marry righteousness, but now I want to obey Christ. I do it as an act of worship to him, and I do it because I trust that he loves me so much that he knows what's best for me. That these things are actually protective. They're not burdensome. And I want to serve him. And I want to live for him. And so it drives me to worship through obedience. And then number four is to share it. Is to share it. When I understand who I am in Christ, when I see the work that Jesus Christ has done in my life in saving me, and I see the continual work of the Spirit of God in my heart continuing to change and transform me day after day, mold me, and it doesn't mean that I'm sinless, it doesn't mean that I don't blow it at times, and yet still immediate forgiveness, and then back into that transforming work and you get excited about what Jesus is doing in your life. You get so excited that you can't help but tell people about it. You ever been so excited about something? You just can't help but share it. Some of you guys know uh, I've spent a, a good bit of time in Haiti. And we've got a number of churches down there. And had several trips here last fall that uh, we were making in preparation. We were setting up the training center in Jacmel, Haiti, and so we're partnering with Harvest Jacmel in that as well. And, and so we had several different trips. Pastor Tim and I just got back a couple weeks ago from the, from the graduation ceremony, from the first graduating class. We now have three church planters that are heading out. We have three existing churches and three guys now going out to plant churches really out of that southern region all throughout the country. And so exciting things were going on. Well, last, last fall, we had a couple of trips, and we were getting the facility there ready to go, and we were getting the curriculum and everything ready to go. And so six of us went down on a trip there at the first week of November of last year. Anyone remember something that happened the first week of November? It was actually kind of the end of October into the first week of November. Hadn't happened in over 100 years. Nobody remembers? Come on, guys. I'm not even a Cubs fan. <laughs> okay. So the Cubs are in the World Series. And like I said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm really not even much of a baseball fan, and, and I'm not a Cubs fan, I'm not a Cards fan. I, I grew up kind of north of Cincinnati. If anything, I'd be a Reds fan, but I'm, I'm really not. But, hey, it's kind of cool. I, I will admit we kind of got on the bandwagon a little bit. It was neat to see, and obviously the history and everything that went into that. And so here we are heading down to Haiti, and we're there the first week of November, and and there's like six of us there, the Bud Seuss, uh, Dan Derrick was there, Brandon Schock, uh, Mitch Hare, uh, Heather Holt was there, and myself. Heather and I were working on writing curriculum and children's ministry stuff with Harvest Jacquemel, and the other four guys were building, and they were building tables and removing walls and putting in doors and doing all kinds of stuff, getting this facility ready to rock and roll here for the training class that, that kicked off, and now it's just finished. And so we're down there for this, and so... You get to the first night here. It's game six of the World Series. And, you know, <clears throat> they don't like have cable 
a whole lot around there in Haiti. You're, matter of fact, you don't even have power a lot of the times. So we had a generator here in the training center, so we had lights and things going on there. But uh, we figured out, while we didn't think we could watch the game, but on our phone, my smartphone here, that I could get ESPN radio. And so we thought, well, at least we'll listen to the game. And so game six, we all got together. We had supper. We were doing some stuff that night. And then everybody piles into the kitchen. And we put my phone in the middle of the table. And we had the radio on. Some guys were on their smartphones. And they're actually checking score by score. And we were seeing which one was first. And so we're sitting around there eating chips, talking and listening to game six of the World Series, getting all excited. And, and, and then we see, and that goes into then game seven. And so here we are, game seven, and we thought we had it all figured out that there was this place, we had a restaurant that, that we could go that would have the game on, and then that, that fell through and that didn't work out. So we were kind of disappointed, but hey, I mean, we're down there, you know, on a missions trip, so it's okay, you can't expect to have everything, and, and that's all right. And so we, uh, <clears throat> hey, missions trips are great, by the way, you want to, they've got some coming up here. So, and so we, we had the phone, had the radio on there. Game six, and you know, the ups and downs of that game. It was just quite an exciting game, and just the pendulum kept swinging back and forth, momentum and, and everything. And, and we were all, I think every one of us there was rooting for the Cubs at, at, at this point. And then it gets to the ninth inning. And so we're getting to the really big, crucial time, and my phone rings. My wife is calling me. Now, wait. She's not calling me. She's actually FaceTiming me. And see, she knew we were, and we'd been texting back and forth a little bit, so she knew we were watching the game. And she says, hey, I got an idea. What I'm going to do is, as I'm FaceTiming you, I will stand in front of the TV and hold the phone up to the TV, and you guys can watch it on your phone through FaceTime. Great. And so for the next two innings, the ninth and tenth inning, my wife, I don't know, she like propped her hands up. There were a couple times we might have just in the heat of the moment said, hold still. <laughs> and she's in there holding up the phone, and we're all six of us gathered around my phone, piled in here, multiple high, everybody getting to a spot. Now nobody can move because now I can see the screen. And we watched the ninth and tenth innings. And then as the Cubs won the World Series and we're jumping around this dark room in Haiti, slapping high fives, so excited about what was taking place. It was great. And the next day we were still, can you believe it? They won. What a game. That was an awesome game. And then you go up to a Haitian, which didn't really mean a whole lot to them. But on the return trip, as soon as you got to the airport, as soon as you touched down Atlanta and you saw some people wearing Cubs gear, and you immediately would go up and you start talking to perfect strangers. Hey, did you see that game? Can you believe that? I'm not even a, much of a baseball fan. I'm not a Cubs fan, but it was something exciting. And so I was talking about it. How much more? as we realize what Jesus Christ has done and the work of God in our life and the promise of the new covenant and the transforming work of the Spirit of God as He just continues to pour His glory in upon us and it changes us and it affects us in such a way and we get so fired up about Jesus Christ that we get to the point we can't help but talk about it. Man, can you believe? I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, look at what God's been doing in my life. 
Look at what's changed. I was under this, this guilt and, and sin, but now I'm free. Man, you got to hear about this. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That's what he's talking about as we're changed from the inside out, as the Spirit of God transforms the heart. So now here's my question. Have you experienced the new life that comes from a relationship with Christ? Have you experienced that? What I just got done talking about, what I just got excited about, have you experienced that? Or are you still under the weight of your sin? And if so, we got good news for you today. Paul laid it out pretty well here. You can't muscle it. We just saw on the video from this past week of VBS, 90 of our young people came to Christ, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They realized this. We say it this way. It's the ABCs. They admitted that they were a sinner. They saw God's law, that God's moral standards, and the fact that, that we don't measure up to that, that we are sinners, that we fall short of that mark. They believed in Jesus Christ, that he was God and he became a man, but he lived a perfect life, that he paid the penalty for our sin. And he died on the cross, not for what he had done, but for what we have done, for our sin. But he didn't just die. He then rose again on the third day and he conquered death. And he conquered and there's victory and life because of Jesus Christ. We admit that we're a sinner, we believe in Jesus Christ and then see, we confess him as Lord. We say, okay, I'm willing to move out of the driver's seat and let you into the driver's seat, Lord. You can now have my life. You're in charge. Maybe you've done the first two, but you've never actually done that third step and put him in charge of your life. If not, get that straight today. Come down. We'd love to talk with you, walk right through how you can know the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. So you can start that change process. You can know what it means to be forgiven. And then if you have, if you've had, are you being transformed? Are you allowing the work of God or are you keep sliding back into the teaching of the Judaizers? And yeah, I mean, yeah, we believe it's faith in Christ, but I've got to still keep muscling. I've got to still keep doing these things. Be ready to let go and say, God, transform me. I want to worship you. I want to be so in awe of who you are and so amazed. And I want to spend time with you. And I want it to affect me and change me and allow you to change me from the inside out. How's that all take place? We'll come back next week. You're going to see at the end of this chapter, lay out some details about how we go about doing that. But where are you at? Are you being transformed? My challenge this week is that you would get so excited, so fired up about Jesus Christ that you just can't help but worship him in all that you do and then share it out. Let's pray.